0: Uh, the third paper um, is now the one that's listed fourth in the program, and it is the paper by Mario Dapinha of Rutgers in New Jersey, Rutgers University in New Jersey, USA. Uh, the title is Beggars on the Move, Hijra Journeys in 18th Century Deccan. Thank you, Professor Feldhaus, and uh, thanks to all the organizers and my co-panelists, and thanks to the audience as well uh, for listening so patiently to all of us. Mm-hmm. Beggars on the Move, Hijra Journeys in the 18th Century deccan In recent years, we have experienced an explosion of new research on Hijra, third gender, and transgender practices and subjectivities in South Asia across the disciplines. However, apart from a few notable exceptions, in the work of Gavin Hambly, Lawrence Preston, Walter Penrose, and lately, Jessica Hinchy, Nicholas Abbott, and Ruby Lal, historians have largely refrained from exploring the subject, thus making its study the preserve of cultural anthropologists and literary scholars. One outcome of the historian's reticence in these matters has been the assumption that how hijabras viewed today, that is through an overwhelming focus on their bodily or gender difference as the nucleus of their subjectivity, was how they were always understood over time. In my presentation today, I hope to move away from this assumption. In the 18th century, Hijras were always more than just their gendered selves. In fact, they were part of a very rich and ritualized world of monastic begging, which operated until the colonial era. My work draws upon 18th century Marathi archival records in the Modi script of two separate provenances. One that is titled Deeds or Watan Patra that are issued by the Maratha Chhatrapati that are available at the Peshwa Daftar and two dispute resolution records, either Nivad Patra or Mahazar Nama, which are in the private collection of the contemporary descendants of the Mundas. They are a group that were attendants to the Hijras in the 18th century. Now, during the 18th century, Hijras in the Western Deccan described themselves as those who survive from generation to generation by begging for alms. post khat aho this understanding likens Hijra's to the members of other groups based on rituals of initiation, such as Gosavis and Fakirs, who also made similar claims of a livelihood based on begging. This particular form of monastic begging, which Hijra's, Gosavis, and Fakirs indulged in, did not emerge from economic distress. It was a ritualized Vocation practiced by several monastic orders whose lifestyle involved one the act of wandering and two the chivalrous protection of government there were several such itinerant groups within the, Mar- the maratha state which considered themselves or beggars and which were founded on rituals of monastic investiture between teacher and disciple guru and shishya peer and murid in addressing government dignitaries, these monastic beggars presented themselves as supplicants, employing terms like bhikshuk in order to underline their status as mendicants. In, in turn, they benefited from the government's providence and largesse in a variety of manners. On occasion, in official correspondence, authorities designated such beggars as ashrit, that is, those who are sheltered or protected, and they were therefore noteworthy recipients of the favour of a dharma-parayan king, that is, one who is particularly renowned for his philanthropy. So monastic beggars like Hijras, Gosavis and Fakirs embarked on overlapping physical and metaphysical journeys. They were drawn to esoteric forms of power linked to the mausolea of saints, whether in the form of samadhis or dargahs. Through their journeys there, they forge relationships between themselves and these sites, creating networks of power. These monastic beggars were distinguished by the quality of being uprooted from the life of samsar, which is the mundane world of family and caste. So their life journeys were often a path towards samadhi um, that is the state of one's ego being completely extinguished, usually through the act of being buried or drowned alive. So monastic beggars inhabited this intermittent space between samsara and samadhi and therefore remained uniquely positioned to channel the power of the mausaliya to ordinary people. Hijras transferred the power of the mausolea as blessings to people who were required to pay them a government-regulated fee for the privilege. The Chhatrapati guaranteed this transfer of benedictions through a vatan or an exclusive tree entitlement, particular Hijra lineages, which have the exclusive right to this ritual trade pre-approved and pre-enlisted territories. Hijra journeys to these territories to grant benedictions and receive payments for them also constituted an important part of their overlapping physical and metaphysical journeys. Now, the Temple of Bhavani at Tulzapur was one ritual site where Hijras travelled. It was here that they performed the initiation of new members. Another site was Alandi, where the anniversary of the Saint Nyaneshwar Samadhi in the month of Karthik attracted a number of monastic mediators, including Hijras. They traveled to Alandi from all over the Western Deccan during the 18th century. In 1751, a goth or investigative assembly of arbitrators who had gathered in Alandi for the Samadhi anniversary delivered a legal decision in a territorial dispute between two Hijra gurus or abbots. The Nivad Patra or legal decree that resolved this conflict notes that there were two households, one of Savitri Hijri Ghodekar and the other of Ratan bin Dhinchap Khedkar, both of whom had visited Alandi for the annual festival. The squabble between the two households conceivably over a patrimony of 14 territories in Suba, Bhivandi, predated the commemoration itself. These areas appear to be vatans. As hijras and other communities venture to the festival, the Patra says, the two households decided to apply for legal recourse there. The investigative assembly subsequently constituted Scrutinized both Savitri's and Ratan's claims and decided the suit in the former's favor, evocatively adding the Marathi turn of phrase, What is yours, you should eat. Tumse tummi khave. The Nivad Patra also added the formulaic idiom of contemporary title deeds and legal decrees that the enjoined rights should be enjoyed and its fruits claimed by the lineage to succeeding generations of death, puth paramparane, lekarat bhav rights to Savitri's household, adding that any obstruction would warrant a gunhegaari or fine from the diwan or the regional government officers. Now, part of this document did not survive the 18th century but it, is, it ostensibly threatens repercussions from the Barabhai, the 12 brothers, meaning the Hijra community elders, for non-compliance as well. A margin note in the record of this legal decision marks that the document was certified Biklam with the pen of Baburao Raghunath, the Deshpande, or the records and accounts keeper of Nane Mawar district, who also attended the festival. Now, this nivad Patra registers its 26 signatories by their geographical last names, which typically occur in Maharashtra by employing the gendered suffixes Kar or Karim, preceded by the village or town name. If witnesses did not live in the village or town attached to their name, the document also records their Vasti or current residences. So these geolocated monikers point that some of the Hijras and their professional associates, the Mundas, made their way to Alandi from nearby villages and towns such as Pimpalgao, Sakan and Pabal, all within a 20-mile radius of the ritual center. However, many Hijras and Mundas also came from further afield, Bhor, Zeduri, Baramati, Rashin, Supe, and Ghode, within 100 miles of Alandi. The most enterprising was one of the plaintiffs herself, Ratan, and a Munda, bubaji who journeyed from Thed in the Kunkan, 127 miles away. Settling prevailing disputes at such sites remained a convenient proposition as they drew together a diversity of people who may act as negotiators or witnesses and who otherwise may have to be transported to one place for these legal deliberations. Now, agreements that were arrived at would also enjoy the backing of the saints' merit, the auspiciousness of sacred time and the weight of government officials who were also travelling to these festivals. Some documents of this period also prefer an understanding of the circular, rhythmic, ritual meanderings that these monastic beggar lineages made throughout the year. Pilgrimages by hijras, mundas, and other monastic beggars to sites such as Alandi occupied, after all, only a percentage of an annual calendar. At other times, monastic beggars often traveled in a patterned manner from one village under their patrimony to another transferring the accumulated power and receiving the payments that constituted their huts or entitlement. Both forms of ritual itinerancy remain central to their lives. Two quarrels that arose between mendicant lineages in 1709 and 1740 provide clues about how these cartographies of monastic geographicity were constituted. Here here I draw upon the recent work of Indrani Chhattiji, who uses the term monastic geographicity to decipher the territorialized networks and relationships based on systems of exchange and ritual between monastic lineages and their lay followers. She suggests that people, commodities, and ideas moved in a complex calendar over these geog- geographies. So the dispute of 1709 emerged between two parties of uh, mendicant abbots, Hijra gurus, whose primary residences were in neighboring villages and who f- fought over a batan of proprietary villages in the wider region surrounding their homes. One party to the suit consisted of two Hijra gurus or abbots, and and one Munda, Hussan Munda, who lived in the town of Jinti. About 40 miles northeast, in the village of Karjat, lived Bhai Khobaji Munda, second party to the dispute. Bhai Khobaji also had a second residence in the village of Koregao, another 20 miles west of Karzat. The contested patrimony consisted of eight villages surrounding these three places, spanning all four directions. The distances between Karzat and the nearest patrimonial village, Alzapur, and the furthest patrimonial village, Pathar, between 20 and 135 miles, overlap almost exactly over the range of distances that we just saw covered by the Hijras and Mundas traveling to Alandi from the surrounding region for the anniversary of Nyaneshwar Samadhi. In the other dispute from 1740, two Hijra gurus appealed to the King Shahu to protect their patrimony from the thieving instincts of other monastic beggars. Kondan Hijra from the village of Jezuri and Sankwar Hijra from the town of Shirwal, about 50 and about 50 and 40 miles north of Satara, possessed a patrimony of all the villages in 18 districts in the provinces of Pune, Mawal, and around. The distances between Zedzuri and Shirwal, and most of the districts mentioned in this title deed was less than 75 miles. This proprietorship then was far more geographically concentrated, yet perhaps vaster in aggregate than the first. Nevertheless, traveling across both proprietary territories would have required an investment of time and effort by these mendicant lineages to cover these distances and successfully collect their annual hunts. While on their journeys, local administrators remained responsible for welcoming and serving these mendicant orders. So often you look at the title deeds and they say they refer to prerogatives from the labor of villages. Five minutes. Thanks, Professor. Um, They refer to prerogatives from the labor of villages, such as ready heavy lifters and guards at night who are supposed to take attentive care of these traveling mendicants. This made the wanderings a tad less cumbersome and contributed to their cycle of itinerancy for the majority of the year. Unfortunately, in both these cases, this eternal wandering, the eternal dawdling, whether near or far, also allowed other mendicants to cheat the true proprietary lineage by claiming to represent and receiving cash, that is, eating the vatan or vatan khani in the Marathi idiom on its behalf. Thank you.